with his stepdaughter. Yeah. <laughs> um, How old again? 11. 11. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I would do some murdering, to be honest. I, I would. Uh... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a serious, it's a serious bad thing he was doing, but does extra legal violence does is that justify extra legal violence no welcome back to the mormon history hoedown for the second episode in our series on the mountain meadows massacre barbara jones brown thanks for coming back in thanks kara thanks for having me all right so Listeners will be familiar, hopefully, with our first episode that we did that came out a few days ago, where we talk about the context and a lot of the political things that led up to this massacre. Super important context. So, if you are in the mood to read a fantastic book, whether on Audible or in hardback form, pick up a copy of Barbara's book, Vengeance is Mine The Mountain Meadows Massacre and its Aftermath, Richard E. Turley Jr. and Barbara Jones Brown. So cannot recommend this book enough. It'll make you cry. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you go, huh, I never knew that. But it's an absolutely fascinating read. Cannot recommend it enough. Links will be down in the bio. So one of the most important aspects, though, to me of understanding this context, you could say, is the violent rhetoric that led up to the massacre. So Barbara, take us and the listeners through things yeah, the the preaching of Brigham Young, the scriptures, mm-hmm. the things around blood atonement, mm-hmm. and the the Mormon Reformation, and what do listeners need to know to understand the the context of what led up to this massacre a little bit better as we go through the series. Right. So the Mormon Reformation took place in 1856 and 1857, and this was starting in 1856. This was about nine years after the Latter Day Saints had come into the Salt Lake Valley. And started colonizing the territory and expanding their own form of expansionism. They're expanding along what we would call the Mormon corridor today, um, along the Wasatch Front, um, and then down to uh, Arizona and up into what is today I- I- Idaho, and then into what is today Nevada. So as they're expanding, in 1856, Young and other church leaders, particularly one of his counselors in the first presidency named Jedediah M. Grant, they um, start feeling like Latter-day Saints aren't as committed as they once were. They're not as faithful in living their religion as they once were. And so they feel like they need to wake up the people through preaching um, violent sometimes um, speeches in church meetings and so forth to wake people up to their duty to be more dedicated religiously. And so they're preaching sermons that they call, uh, Wilford Woodruff, a a Mormon apostle, describes as like pitchforks coming down with the tines down, lightning from heaven. It's making the hearts of many tremble. So you've got this very heightened sense of um, hysteria almost, if you will, about this. Um, And again, this is 1856 and 1857. One of the doctrines that Young is preaching and others are preaching at this time is the doctrine of blood atonement. 
Many Latter-day, most Latter-day Saints today will have never heard of it because it's, it fell out of being preached um, in the 19th century. But what it was, was the doctrine that Jesus Christ's blood alone was not enough for a, to atone for certain serious sins. And those sins uh, included murder and repeated adultery. And so the doctrine was that it wasn't enough for Jesus to atone for you if you committed one of those sins, but that you had to atone additionally by giving up your own blood, having your own blood spilt. And if you would agree or submit yourself to that, that you could then still go to the highest heaven in the afterlife in spite of whatever serious sin you had committed. Um, so it's a very chilling, very violent doctrine that's being taught. And again, we quote Brigham Young saying that, you know, if you if you um, help your neighbor who confesses to a serious sin and submits themselves to this uh, blood atonement, you are saving them in the next life. So you mentioned that people are not being as faithful as the leaders think that they should be and that yeah. the that this new reformation needs to be put into place and these sermons need to be preached much more violently. Were there like yeah. specific historical things that happened that the leaders were made aware of where they're like, whoa, everybody get back on the, the right train of Christ where we murder you all. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wouldn't say it's like, okay, we're going to murder you all and that's going to make you all more faithful. But a blood atonement is just kind of a sub- doctrine or sub-teaching that's part that's being taught during the Mormon Reformation. I love to be the hyperbolic sense. comedian and you have to be the historian. <laughs> I have to be the historian like... and give you all the context. No. Um, so one thing that's, that happens in 1856 is uh, there's a blight, there's a crop blight. And so um, people are suffering like their crops are not flourishing um, they're suffering from lack of food and so forth. And so the church leaders interpret it as, oh, we're not being faithful enough. And so God isn't blessing us. We need to recommit ourselves. Um, there's a feeling that people aren't going to church as often as they should or or paying their tithing as well as they should. Just all of those principles that are kind of markers of faithfulness in the church. They just feel like people aren't as faithful as they had been when they initially came into the valley. And so, was there... Any kind of, um, let's say, uh, sexual context or like polygamous context that people should know yeah. about? Yeah. So they, they this? absolutely. So they are pushing polygamy. They're saying as a sign of your faithfulness, you must enter into polygamy. And so the number of people who take poly the number of men who uh, you had to get permission from church leaders to be able to uh, enter into a polygamous marriage. And so the numbers of requests that come into church headquarters saying, I would like to take, you know, a polygamous wife is just huge. And so one of, we have a quote from one of the clerks that's saying, you know, he's surprised at how many of these are coming. So people are like being riled up to participate more fully in their faith. And polygamy is one of those markers that shows that they're being faithful. Uh, so, I have a question sure. that... I always kind of wanted to know the answer to, but maybe you can help me out, but maybe sure. you don't know the answer to this. So with so many documentaries about polygamy coming out in the modern day of different mm -hmm. breakoff sex from the LDS mm -hmm. church, and 
we see that kind of reformation happening with Warren Jeffs and the FLDS, mm. where he's mm. like, no more corn and no more basketball. Yes, and no more this that or that. kind of a thing. And, yeah. Um, Different, but similar. Yeah. yeah. In the, in what I understand, the modern day kind of polygamist LDS context, um, you know, sometimes it has to do with people not being faithful enough and not wanting to be at, you know, living the law of consecration or living, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know, marrying their daughters as young as the leaders would want them to marry them or not taking enough wives. What was the motivation? Like specifically, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but you probably will. Um, like, I'm just curious if we can dig down a little bit into like more of the, the polygamist motivations um, that are tied to the Mormon reformation. Yeah. So, so again, I think it was just like, they just wanted people dedicated to the church, dedicated to the gospel, and they wanted them to show it through outward practices. And again, polygamy was one of those things. So um, Wilford Woodruff, who's, again, he's a an apostle in the LDS church and also a church assistant church historian. He says it's, it's hard now to find a girl in the territory who's 14, who hasn't been engaged yet, isn't it, it, at least engaged, if not married yet. And that's a 14. thumbs up. That's like, yeah. Like that a when, thumbs up then? Yes. That's that there. That's the thumbs Instead up. Instead of like, saying like, mm-hmm. there's not a girl who isn't engaged at 14 and that's a little young. I, uh, I wish That's we were doing young. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. He's, he's just saying, yeah, this is, yeah. So 14 seemed to be, and I'm not an expert on early polygamy, but 14, just from the sources that I saw and then quoted here, seems to be the youngest age that it's considered acceptable. Um, and that comes out a few different places in the book, just as a side note, but 14 seems to be the youngest age, which is pretty young. And was yeah. there a part of the book, this old book right here, Vengeance is Mine, it's an absolute page turner. I really do mean that. Uh, there Wasn't there a part about, um, you know, a lot of controversy around if blood atonement was really practiced and then mm. specific stories yeah. and resources of people being like sent to California, being a euphemism for yeah. them being killed. So yeah. do you want to tell any of those stories? So here's, yeah. So here's um, something that we found with blood atonement. So obviously we found the the preaching, you know, we quote Brigham Young preaching it. And again, it's pretty chilling and we have those quotes in the book, but we also found that in August of 1857, so this is just weeks before the massacre, we know of a man named, um, uh, Rasmus Anderson, who is blood atoned. Uh, the state president in Cedar City, his name was Isaac C. Haight. He was the state president of Cedar City, Utah, in southern Utah. He was the um, militia major in Cedar City, Utah, and he was the mayor of Cedar City. He was an incredibly powerful man. He writes young, and he says that there's a man in the Cedar City congregation named Rasmus Rasmus Anderson who has been engaging in sexual acts with his stepdaughter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, How old again? Eleven. Eleven. I would do some murdering, to be honest. I, I would. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a serious it's a serious bad thing he was doing, but does extra le- legal violence does is that justify extra legal violence? No, 
But anyway, so um, so he is caught. They're caught in the act. And what's what's interesting to me, it just shows the difference in the times because they feel like the girl was committing sin too, rather than realizing, well, an 11-year-old can't get it give consent. You know, it's different times today. We understand things a lot better today. But anyways, so the girl and Rasmus Anderson, um, they stand up before the congregation and confess their sins. 11-year-old girl too. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Different. Yeah. That was one of my comments to my cult. I was like, how can an 11-year-old girl can't give consent? Why was she considered being sinful? But Anyways, it was 1856. Again, not justifying it, but just a different time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the girl and Rasmus Anderson are made to confess in the con- before the congregation, and they are warned by the local bishop named Philip Klingensmith that um, saying what if they repeat those sins, showing the quote is showing them what it would lead to if they they do ever do it again. So they're rebaptized in the church as a symbol of, you know, being cleansed from their sin, but then later they are caught in the act again. And this is what Isaac Hayde is writing to Brigham Young. We have this led these letters. And so when Rasmus Anderson is caught in the act again, Hate writes young and he says, I thought I should, um, I sent the police for him and we sent them, we sent him to California. Sending someone to California was an, a euphemism at the time in Southern Utah that meant um, we killed them. Um, and so we this happens in August of 1857. It's brought up again in the trials of John D. Lee many years later. So uh, we know that this was an instance of blood atonement. And reportedly, Rasmus Anderson volunteered himself up. He said, okay, if I need to offer up my own blood so that I can go to the celestial kingdom or the highest kingdom, uh, the highest Mormon kingdom, then I will offer up my own blood. They bring him, uh, supposedly it's Philip Klingensmith and some other local Cedar City men. They bring him to, they dig a hole, they slit his throat, they allow his blood to fall into it. And then when he's dead, they put him in the hole and bury him. Um, I will say that Philip Klingensmith, he's asked about this when he's on the witness stand in a different trial later, years later. He says he knew that this happened, but that he wasn't involved. And from, But we know it happened. So, so that's horrible. Yeah. Just, just yeah. horrible. So why did we talk about yeah. this? Because, so this happens in August of 57. The leader of it, of, of carrying out this doctrine of blood atonement is Isaac Haight. Isaac Haight is the same man, and Philip Klingensmith. Isaac Haight is the same man who uh, sends the militiamen out to commit the atrocity of killing all these innocent people from Arkansas. Um, it's not an instance of blood atonement in these people's case, their, their motivation be, behind why they murdered these people. But why it does matter, though, is it shows the violent mindset that these people are in, that they're willing to carry out the murder of someone because they think that's the right thing to do. And this is the very man that a few weeks later sends the militia out to carry out the massacre. And Philip Klingsmith is also a leader in the massacre. So it's it's striking that this happens in August of 1857. Yeah, that is some amazing context. Uh, yeah. Thank you for pointing all of that out. 
who I'm sure listeners are probably interested in knowing how common something like that was. Because in one sense, it kind of feels like capital punishment, but there's not like a trial. There's not a jury. There's not a sentencing. It's extra legal violence. Yeah. It's extra legal violence. Mm -hmm. The kind I only reserve for people who do those things with 11 year olds. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Be a trial. (laughs) Go through the criminal justice system first. (laughs) So people are probably interested to know how often that type of extra legal violence was happening in your historical research through diaries. What can you tell people about how common that was? Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be common, but I am not an expert on blood atonement. We, um, we, we carried in and showed all of Young's preaching about it so people could see the kind of violent rhetoric that's being preached. And then we found this incidence in Cedar City and shared that in the book, but we didn't do a deep dive into every instance of blood atonement that we could find. Um, but I w- I'm really excited to say that um, after this book came out, I became director of Signature Books Publishing. And so I went to a man named Michael Homer, who's been doing some research on this and how blood atonement affects the way um, Utah's uh, um, death penalty, the the thought behind why Utah continues to have the death penalty today. He's an attorney. So I went to Michael and I said, we need a book length treatment of blood atonement to understand what it was, what it wasn't how frequently it occurred, you know, gets document instances of when it occurred. So he is writing that book. And so I'm happy to say that Signature Books will be publishing that sometime in the near future if people want to do a deep dive into just Blood Atonement itself. Because there is a a ton of resources to pull from, quotes and things like that, right? So it's yeah, is it, is it's, it hidden or is it the problem? Pretty... The problem that I found with blood atonement is like people use that term very loosely. So if a Mormon kills someone else, oh, they he blood atoned him. Well, was it blood atonement or was it just murder? You know, what were the motivations behind it? It seems to be used so loosely that um, I went to Michael as a historian and he's going to, he's digging deep into it. Uh, when it was when it was preached, its origins, where it came from originally, when it was stopped, when did it stop being preached and mm-hmm. taught? And then documenting specific instances where we know that the murder of somebody, the killing of somebody, was committed as an act of blood atonement. Um, you know, not every instance of murder that took place in Utah was because of. But atonement, as some people like to jump to that conclusion without doing the historical research. Like the people who committed the atrocities of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, in a way, who were kind of jumped to the conclusions that those people had some association with that's killing been, Joseph been the, Smith or something. Yeah, yeah, that has been the theory for generations. And what our research showed was it was not an act of blood atonement. Right. Because but again, was... but again, there was a violent mindset though of the perpetrators in with 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 Isaac Kane, some of these leaders. Plus, 
isn't blood atonement. You have to like be a member of the church in the first place. Yeah. And you have to volunteer yourself. You have to say, okay, I'm willing to offer up my own blood so that I can still go to the celestial kingdom, which ultimately is what John D. Lee, that comes out at the end. Why um, he's willing in the very end to say he believes in his son. His son writes him. David Lee, and he says, okay, if you did really do this, then by your being, receiving capital punishment, then you can, you are atoning for what you did. Comes out at the end of the book. So, so in the first episode, you and I together, we talked about the political conflict that's going on. And then now we've been talking about the religious context or the beliefs and uh, some of the violent rhetoric that's going on that also comes into play. So I I often say it's like a perfect storm. All of these factors came together to result in this horrific tra- atrocity. Um, so that's the mindset of people. And so they're riled up, as I mentioned before, because of war hysteria. They are worried about these troops that are coming in. They don't know what's going to happen. Then there's one more political strategy that I wanted to discuss. We talked a little bit last time about Brigham Young and the strategies he comes up with to try and keep the troops from occupying Utah territory. The last one was he knows that, we were talking about manifest destiny, he knows that most of the emigrant trails that pass from the eastern United States to the resource-rich Western Coast, California and Oregon Territory, passed through Utah Territory at that time. And so to keep um, expansionism going, to accomplish the goals of Manifest Destiny, those trails have to be safe and open for emigrants, people who are crossing the country, to travel. If he can stop travel from happening, if travel through Utah Territory stops, then the purposes of the federal government are um, thwarted. So he comes up with the strategy and he says, and he's saying this in his speeches again and again, and he's writing this in his letters to Washington, D.C. and to others. He's saying, if the federal government is going to send troops here, then we, the Mormons, who have been keeping these trails safe from Indian aggression, and again, he's playing on he's playing on 19th century stereotypes and racist beliefs about natives at that time that we don't subscribe to, but this is the language he's using. He's saying, um, then all hell is going to break loose and native Americans are going to start raiding emigrant companies and emigration across the country will no longer be safe. Brigham saying this. Brigham is saying this. Yeah. And again, we quote him quite a bit so readers can see him, you know, see all the times he's saying this. Um, So publicly he's saying, so immigration is going to stop now unless you pull the troops back, federal government. Privately, he's encouraging local Native Americans to raid immigrant cattle companies, to raid their cattle, to make sure that what he's publicly blustering about to the federal government, he's making sure that it is going to happen. And so he has um, his Native American interpreters or people that speak Native American languages. They're meeting with local tribes and saying, hey, we want you to go out and raid the emigrant cattle companies, steal their cattle privately, secretly, to make sure that what he's blustering about 
will happen. And so they meet with tribes throughout the territory and then uh, Indian missionaries, or in other words, Latter-day Saints who are missionaries to the Indians who speak these native tongues, they lead, they participate in these cattle raids that take place. Um, And there's a map that's in the back of the book between September 7th and October 3rd, 1857, uh, we documented multiple raids on cattle companies, on multiple raids on multiple cattle uh, companies throughout the entire Utah Territory. This is all breaking out at the same time. When I saw that, this was studying the aftermath of the massacre. When I saw how many raids were taking place at the same time and on all these different companies and all throughout Utah Territory, and then read alongside that, these private meetings Jung's having where he's encouraging cattle raiding. It hit me, there was not just one company that was targeted. Mm. There were multiple companies from um, all over in the Southwest. A systemic tinderbox. Systemic. Systemic. And so when you realize that, then you have to look at the the prior... um, interpretations of why this company was killed. If it was multiple companies, there's something else going on besides just, oh, these people are from Arkansas. Apostle Parley P. Pratt was murdered in Arkansas in 1857. Oh, it was just revenge for Parley's death. Well, then why were all these other companies also attacked who weren't from from Arkansas during the same period? Mm -hmm. So, um, it's it it becomes clear as as you read these sources, you look at the map and so forth, that it was Brigham Young's encouraging cattle raiding as a political strategy to oppose to try and keep the troops from coming into Utah Territory that led to these multiple attacks. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask to clarify. Yeah. The cattle raiding, people are, you know, they're moving across the plains yeah. out to California mm-hmm. is what you're kind of describing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And a cow is like, you know, the price oh, of a car or something, right? Exactly. And so the people are coming out with, you know, their entire livelihood of livestock, everything that they have to move right. over and very valuable. So when you say yes. cattle raiding, are they stealing their cattle? What are they doing to the people? So they're encouraging raids? Indians to run off their cattle, their cattle herds and put them in the mountains and and eat them or um, keep them for, you know, having more cattle, so forth. But he doesn't, it's not so much that Young cares what the Indians do with them, with the cattle. He just wants them run off so he can say, look, you're sending, and he does, he writes, he writes letters as, as these raids happen. He's writing letters um, to the federal government. He's saying, look, the news that you are sending troops here Again, playing on racialized stereotypes, he says, the news that troops are on their way here quickens the blood of an Indian. And they are already starting to attack emigrant cattle companies. And so you need to pull the troops back. Mm. And from the book, it sounds like the, the, the Native Americans, they're pretty much like, I thought you told us that we shouldn't be doing this. Exactly. Like, they say, wait, what was you... their motivation for participating in this? The promise of having the cattle. Okay. Food. I mean, it's a fab. It's a fantastic food source. But otherwise, um, they wouldn't have been doing that. Or oh no, they no. They they they. So as um, white American emigration is spreading and civilization is spreading across the West, 
um, these immigrants and settlers, they're encroaching on Native Americans' lands. They're taking their water sources. They're starting to farm, which is is a, a different form of growing food than the traditional ways Native Americans have had. And Native Americans are starving. Many of these tribes, they um, it is is destroying their way of life, destroying their food sources and so forth. So yeah, they would pick off cattle when they could to eat. You know, and they also saw it as like, you should give us cattle as, you know, just payment for us allowing you to camp on our lands and use our lands and pass through our lands. So, um, yeah, so raiding of cattle by Native Americans was happening all across the West mm -hmm. and justifiably so, yeah, for survival. Mm -hmm. um, but that, again, that leads to conflict between settlers, cattle ranchers, and so forth who don't understand or see the need for Native Americans to take their cattle. They just think it's wrong. To them, it's just stealing, not realizing they have stole, stolen Native Americans' lands. Yeah. You know, if you ever want to come back <laughs> so. and talk more about all of the history of Brigham Young and the Mormon settlers in Utah and anything else along that subject, whether related to this book or otherwise, because mm -hmm. Yeah. That's always a really important piece of American yeah, history, absolutely. U.S. history that's kind of overlooked. Yeah, yeah. So it's and again, it's not just Utah; it's throughout anywhere where white yeah. Euro Euro American settlers are. They took, yeah, our ancestors took over the land, their land. So, so Brigham Young is encouraging. Saying the there's going rating. to be trouble, mm -hmm. making sure that there's trouble. The cattle rating. Yep. He basically he just spells trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's, he's, again, we quote him as saying, we don't want a drop of blood shed because we're trying to win a political, what we would call a political or a public affairs. We're trying to win political um, opinion in our favor. We want the American people and Congress to say, what are you doing, President Buchanan? Why have you sent these troops here? Look what it's leading to. Pull the troops back. Um, just leave the Mormons where they are and everything will go back to just being safe for immigrants to pass through to the West. Thank you, Barbara, for coming on for our second yeah. episode in this series yeah. and explaining all of this important context about this violent rhetoric that uh, a lot of modern LDS people, people like me, when I was in the church, I never it's would have shocking known. It's, it's, to, it's shocking to read it and go, in there. wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> kind of actions this rhetoric absolutely leads to, which is no yeah. surprise. This is a uh, part two of our multi-part series of talking about Barbara's book, Vengeance is Mine, The Mountain Meadows Massacre and its Aftermath. So please uh, click the links down in the description below. Please pick up a copy of the book and read it for yourself and yeah, dig into these documents and sources for yourself if you want to know more and keep watching this series. So Barbara, um, what are we going to be talking about? What answers and what questions and answers are we going to be going through so in the next? I think next series. time let's dig into again, like if all of these cattle companies, all these immigrant companies were attacked during that three week time period, what happened with this one that led to all of them being wiped out? Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about the surviving children and we'll talk about the aftermath of the massacre, the cover-up, and then why it took so long for a trial to take place, the prosecution, and the legacy of the massacre. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to dive into this more. Absolutely. Uh, 
appreciate you for coming out. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for going on this deep dive with me. It's my honor, truly, <laughs> truly. And I also want to thank anyone who has donated to my Venmo, Dropbox, um, make super chats on YouTube or join my Patreon. That all goes to my nonprofit. It's all tax deductible. And you guys have all helped me make this podcast. All the links to donate are down below in the description. I'm really excited and really thankful to be able to set up my new studio, have a bunch of really diverse, interesting guests coming on throughout the year. Thank you guys so much for your support. And I will see you next time on the Mormon History Hoedown. Thank you so much, Barbara. Bye.